Now, Backyard Millionaire. How to create wealth where you are with what you've got. Here's your host, Chris Story. So one day, when I was 16, I was on a back road. It was a, it was a winter day, very snowy, back road. And the state plow guy was ahead of me. And, you know, not going too fast, plowing the road. And he pulled up into a driveway. I dutifully waited. I thought he was turning around. Pulled up into a driveway. Well, he wasn't, wait- he wasn't trying to turn around. He was waiting for me. He was letting me pass. And I didn't know it. And he got frustrated. Or some people say frustrated. And he waved me through. He waved me on angrily. Now, mind you, I'm 16 years old. Backcountry, snowy road, having a great day, not thinking about much. I'm 16 years old, thinking about the world, thinking I know everything about the world. This guy has the audacity to wave me on like I'm some kind of an idiot. That's how he treated me. He was like, he was like, oh, you get there, you know, and he's like making this angry face and putting his arms up like I'm an idiot and waving me on. Well, <laughs> I'm 16 years old, so you know that I practically know everything at 16. If doesn't every 16, I mean, we know everything. Well, the look on his face and how angry he was and how he waved me through, it really upset me. It shouldn't have, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, with the benefit of life under my belt, I obviously I shouldn't have been upset. I should have just kind of, oh, thank you and, and moved on. But no, the way he treated me I decided there was one solution. And if you're, you're already a step ahead of me, yes, 16-year-old me gave him the one-finger salute on my way by. I'm not proud of this. I don't tell you this to impress you, but to impress upon you, I was 16 years old. Now, being that I was 16, it didn't dawn on me that I was on a dead-end road and that in the not-too-distant future, like the next 20 minutes, I'd be turning right around and passing who? Yeah, this guy. Well, as I'm coming towards him, back the other direction, head-on this time, the greater driver once again pulls his snowplow up, off onto a little bit of a road up the hill, but not all the way. He leaves his butt end hanging out just a little bit. I can still get by, but he leaves it hanging down a little bit. And he dismounts the greater. Now, mind you, it's been 20 minutes, and in my world at 16, I might as well have been three weeks. I was thinking about other things, listening to music. I rolled down the window. I watched him approach. And this state employee, this state worker, walked right up to my truck, marched right up to my truck, and extended his hands and put them around my neck, and he began to choke me. (laughs) You better not be laughing. (laughs) Are you laughing? You are, aren't you? That's okay. I was 16. He said, if you ever give me that finger again, I'm going to cut it off. And what all I can say from there is he said he was going to place it somewhere for safekeeping within me. That's all you need to know. Now, adrenaline's pumping through me. I mean, every corpuscle, every blood vessel in my, my brain, a survival instinct is all that's happening. And my reaction was instant. I mean, I don't know how long he'd been choking me, but it was very, very instant that I just slammed on the gas. I mean, I just 
boom, floored the gas. Now, he's still got a hold of my neck. And he's trying to run alongside the truck. And then he falls to the ground. And uh, um, But he didn't get run over. So there's... You know, nobody, no, nobody but me was injured in this. And, uh, but he did, he fell down, got back up and he starts running after truck screaming. And I, I'm screaming some things back, um, at him. And I once again gave him the Heidi how ho, uh, one finger salute and drove on, went about my business. Now my parents were out of town at the time. They'd been traveling on business. So I'm staying with my grandparents. And the next day, that was in mid-afternoon, call it on a Saturday, next day, Sunday. And my grandpa sees me in the, in the basement. We're watching football. And he looks over and he says, what, what happened? And I said, oh, nothing. And he looked at me and he, he looked at my neck. And you could clearly see the pattern of hands, like bruising around my neck. And he says, Christopher what happened? And I once again said, Oh, nothing, nothing. Now, sure. I was, I'd be in trouble. This is the way I was raised. You don't do, you do not flip people off. You do not go to a state employee and flip them off. You don't go to anybody and do that. This I knew I was going to be in trouble. This is the ethics and the morals I was raised with. Now I knew what the guy did was wrong, but I, I thought I was going to be the one in trouble. So my grandpa took another look at me and this time he had a twinkle in his eye and a bit of a sideways, slight smile. And he said, Christopher, what happened? So I tell him the story. And he, he just listened and nodded. Now, mind you, he was a World War II bomber pilot. He'd seen a lot. Nothing was panicking him. He didn't fly off the handle. He just very calmly and deliberately said to me, Now, you are going to tell your dad, or I'm going to. Which would you prefer? Okay, I'd been disrespectful. And again, as I told you, I was ashamed of what I'd done. That's because my parents raised me to be respectful. This was built into my DNA that what I'd done was wrong. But they'd also modeled this idea that you respect your neighbors and other people in general, especially, you know, people in authority and so forth. You know, really, um, that was, like I said, that was in my DNA. So I trepidatiously... Several days later, whenever my parents got home, the bruising had subsided quite a bit and um, told them what happened. And um, yeah, I was right. I was in trouble. You know, I mean, I was like, I got a lecture on driving is a privilege that you show respect to other drivers. You, you show respect. Do you realize that without the plows on the road, we wouldn't be able to get through? Do you realize what they do? Do you realize that the position they're in, et cetera, et cetera? And you're never to do that again. And okay, lesson learned. And they knew truthfully, my dad knew, as we're having this conversation very sternly, but he knew already I'd received the most powerful lesson that my actions probably could have brought about. And my dad said, okay, we're done with this, but tomorrow I'll be picking you up at your lunch break from school. Which did not make me happy. I did not like that, did not want that, thank you. So the next day, my dad took me to the state troopers. He told the sergeant what had happened. He had asked me to relay what had happened, actually. And uh, as I'm telling the sergeant what, what took place, my dad was listening calmly. And the state trooper said to me, and I'm going to quote here because I'll never forget. I was 16, 34 years ago, almost 35 years ago. I can still hear him saying very, very sternly across his very large desk while wearing 
semi-automatic weapon and uh, clips and ammunition and the badge and the whole thing, you know, I'd have been pretty mad at you if you'd flipped me off. It's sort of like a record scratch. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> Wait, what? Now, my dad did a double take. He was looking at me. And then he, he looked back at the troop. He's like, what? He said, Chris, my dad said, Chris, show him the bruises. And I pulled the shirt down a little bit. And you could still see a little bit of the bruising. And the trooper doubled down again how he'd been upset if I'd flipped him off. And my dad said some words at that point in a tone that was pure authority, not hostile, not angry, not disrespectful, but pure authority. He spoke to that trooper and the trooper then sat up a little straighter who's long since retired, but he sat up a little straighter and he agreed that, yes, of course, uh, this wasn't acceptable. And at that point I had left the room and more words were said that I wasn't privy to. But at some point, the director of the Department of Transportation called my dad personally and said, what do you want? Are you going to move forward with pressing charges or do you want this guy's job? What do you want? The answers to those questions were no and no. Don't want his job. Not going to press charges. However, we need to ensure that this guy never commits this kind of violence on another driver or kid ever again. And... As I was thinking about that this morning, quite a bit actually, and I cannot tell you why this, this, well, I can, but I'm not going to. Something, I'm going to leave it for another time, but something come up recently that put this story back into my mind, the little lessons I learned from my father and how powerful that is when you have sons or daughters, but it's particularly when you have sons, of which I was not blessed, but now I have three grandsons. Two beautiful, amazing daughters. But it's a whole different thing to raise daughters from sons. I'm convinced of that. Now that especially that I have grandsons. And what I learned from my dad, I just thought, you know, what did I learn from that situation? Well, first of all, I learned my actions have serious and immediate consequences. That, that came at me powerfully in that moment. But also uh, from how my, ha my father handled the situation. He was, he was very powerful in the situation, but wasn't petty or litigious. He showed me how he handled himself that even law enforcement, an officer of the law wasn't above a reproach when in the wrong, and he had been. He showed me how a man behaves when confronted with a system designed to protect itself comes at you. He showed me mercy and what it is to be merciful, is that driver could have easily been fired. And you know, that undoubtedly, if my father had elected to do that, that would have undoubtedly put the nail, more than likely, put the nail in the coffin of a life that was already on self-destruct. And these are the lessons I learned from my father.
You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire. I'm Christopher Story along with Mr. David Webb bringing you what my mom calls the greatest show on earth. Stories like that are the reason that I'm never able to answer the question, Chris, what's your show about today? I don't know. I have no idea what it's going to be about. I can tell you what's coming up. How big is your backyard when we return here to The Backyard Millionaire? Stick around. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. I'm Chris Story. Our website is ilovehomeralaska.com. ilovehomeralaska.com. You're welcome to email me there from there anytime. All the Contact Us stuff is there. You can contact me with real estate questions, life questions, or um, anything. It doesn't matter. Whatever you want at ilovehomeralaska.com. You can also start your Alaska real estate property search right there. Anywhere in Alaska, you can start your search at ilovehomeralaska.com. I'm reading um, right here. You can hear it in the background there. That is Trump University Real Estate 101, Build Wealth with Real Estate Investments, actually written by Gary Eldred, forward by Donald J. Trump. This came out, in, I think, in 2006. I've, I've read portions of this on air before, just a little things. In fact, probably the last time I brought this book to you, we were talking about all of the headlines Gary found from over the years that talked about the you know the end times essentially of real estate like ah it's over it's never going to get better than this like in 1942 or something and you know when the average price of a home was eight thousand bucks or less and you know things like that so the the predictions of the death of real estate is an investment but a little bit later in the program I'm going to be talking to you from this book about things how to separate yourself from the pack how to make sure that your investment, your properties, your rentals stand out head and shoulders above the competition, almost creating a blue ocean, if you will, of opportunity with your property. Now, this is specifically talking about rentals, but you can apply it to sales as well. If you want to sell your home or property, uh, these things, these ideas, this checklist, this will be helpful. But holding this book in my hands makes me think about Donald Trump for a minute and what he's going through in New York. You know, you don't, this isn't a, I was just talking to Matt earlier today, just met him, nice guy, and he was talking about, he enjoys this show, and he was talking about sometimes he has to take a break from the politics of it all, and just has to take a break and dip, dip into some music or something else besides the politics that are coming at you constantly, because it just, oh, you, can, you know, you, you're, it's, the 24-hour news cycle is designed to almost like you're, Facebook feed or your your social media Insta feed, Twitter feed, all of those things are designed in a way to enhance the cortisol in your brain to release the dopamine, to release these endorphins that cause this insatiable angst and there's not a lot you can do about it, really. What, are you going to yell at one more person today about uh, the unfairness of this, or that, or the other? No, of course not. I mean, at some point, you just unplug or or you, you, you know, grab your chest. Ah! Well, thinking about Donald Trump, though, in an apolitical sense, let's just think about this in a real estate perspective and evaluation. The judge, you've seen this judge in this court case in, in New York. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on. By the way, a lot of people listen to this program that aren't MAGA nation, that are left-leaning, just because they love, number one, me. Can you blame them? 
No. Number two, love real estate and the idea of widening their opportunity to enjoy it or enhance their current holdings, increase their cash flow net worth, or just look for a bit of optimism, look for something uh, a bit humorous. They enjoy the show of this because this is a world-class radio show. Just say it with me, world-class radio show. And they enjoy that. I don't care which side of the aisle you're on, however. The judge mugging for the camera, the judge enjoying smiling, split his face in half, took his glasses off and is mugging for the camera in the trial, in the, hello, could you imagine if you're the defendant in this case and you see the judge predisposed to this attention and just loving it? Like, I, oh, no, no. He's made his mind up, in other words. Okay, so that's that may or may not be political. It could be personality. He's also a New Yorker. Some people maybe just hate the guy, hate Trump, just because of who he is, how he is. But let's take the real estate question for a minute. Mar-a-Lago. You're familiar with Mar-a-Lago, obviously. 17 acres, Florida, coast on both sides of it. I mean, it's virtually an island. And he picked it up for six, seven million bucks in 1984, five, somewhere in there. But, but that's not even the point. What its worth was then was far greater than the $7 million he paid. Far greater. Value and what you pay do not necessarily correlate. In other words, how he got the bank who owned the property, and the, uh, just in my experience, I'll tell you, banks owning real estate don't always make the wisest decisions in how to handle the sale of that property, not impugning any one bank, but I've worked with a lot of them over the last 22 years. And I'm telling you, this story that I'm about to tell you isn't unique, isn't singular to this one instance. So Donald Trump comes along, they're asking 20 million bucks, it's in receivership or whatever, it's been foreclosed upon, the bank says, we want 20 mil. DJ comes along and says, I'll give you, um, I like, yeah, we're on first initial basis. DJ comes along and says, I'll give you 15 million. Bank says, go pound sand, no way. No way, Jose, we want 20. He says, okay. Across the street, adjacent was a oceanfront piece of property on the other side, picks it up for 2 million bucks. Let's the world know he is going to build a high rise on that property, thus blocking the view of Mar-a-Lago. Nobody wants to buy it. Comes back to the bank and says, I'll give you 7 million. They took it. Okay, so now he's bought this. He's put another hundred and some odd million bucks into it. All of that doesn't even matter as its evaluation is concerned. In other words, this judge who's mugging for the camera, loving this case, it's bringing attention to him that he's never had before in his life, and he's loving it. And he's loving being able to be the tip of the spear to take down who he considers to be a mortal enemy of America. He says it's worth Mar-a-Lago. He determines through his own evaluation process, which I do not understand. He determines that it's in fact today worth only $18 million. Thus, Trump is clearly overstated at his $400 million valuation back when he borrowed some money, used it as collateral. He's, he's, he's committed fraud upon the bank, perpetrated fraud to the bank as a result of overstating his valuation. Now, even then, it probably, even if it had only been worth 380 or whatnot, what you state 
of the value is, is your opinion. And you, you, obviously, if you overinflated it for fraudulent purposes, then yeah, you could be subject to some, some charges there. I mean, obviously, fraud is fraud. This is so, I'll tell you what the fraud is being committed. To say that Mar-a-Lago is $18 million in value. So if you even believed that for half a second, you fundamentally misunderstand valuation of real estate, period. I mean, it's even if it's worth, I heard him say recently in a press conference that it's worth over a billion dollars or something like that. Let's just say that it's mm, that he's inflated again in his mind, as so often is the case, right? What I own is worth more than what you think it is, in my mind. That's human nature. So let's just say that he's wrong and that it's uh, 800 million is really what it could sell for. And remember, fair market value is a twofold component. And this is what I don't think the judge understands or does and just is tr still trying to manipulate the situation. And again, if you don't believe me and you're not watching the media or you haven't done your own research to see the judge mugging for the camera, uh, which is indicative of what he thinks about the entire case, go watch that on YouTube. Go find those clips. They're out there. But he so either fundamentally misunderstands what fair market value is or this judge is using some tool, some metric by which he can measure the value, downgrade it, so much so that he can create this disparate uh, sensibility or this gulf between what was stated as value and what he thinks is value such that it looks criminal to anybody with two eyes. But the reality is that fair market value is, is a twofold component. And I think we can all, as Americans, learn from this situation because one day, what if it was you that was on this same charge because you've made a mortgage application potentially or as you build your fortune in your own backyard, you're going to be filling out applications and the bank will be asking you to put a schedule together of what is your property worth. Okay, we see here... Um, Mr. Johnson, you owe $200,000 on this triplex. What do you think the valuation is? In other words, they're trying to get at your net worth. They're trying to get at your equity position. And you, Mr. Johnson says, oh, yeah, I owe $200,000. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't sell it for less than five fifty. Oh, okay, you have a $350,000 net equity position in that property. Great, thank you very much. That starts to add up to your net worth. They take that into consideration as a component of approving the loan. Not the component, but a component. But remember... Fair market value is comprised of two things. The least a willing seller will accept and the most a willing buyer will pay. So this judge has essentially made an offer, but the most I'd pay is $18 million. It's like it means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. It's a waste of breath to even discuss it, except in as much as it is, it's, it's illustrative of what is fair market value. And when somebody puffs, do you know what puffery is? Puffery is different than outright fraud or misrepresentation. To puff something in the legal sense of the term, and I'm not a lawyer, but in the legal sense of the term puffery, it is to exaggerate. Hello. Hello. Donald Trump exaggerated something? This is crazy talk. Of course he exaggerated the value. Then you as a lender go get an appraisal. Hey, we're going to hire an independent appraiser. Look, uh, we all the time as real estate brokers do valuations for banks all the time. It's common, common course. Say, hey, so-and-so is using this for collateral. Would you mind giving us a broker opinion of value? Now, again, even a broker opinion of value, which is going to be probably 
more neutral than an owner opinion of value. It's going to be based on facts. It's going to be based on comparable sales and some adjustments made by our knowledge in the industry and the market and so so forth. But even still, it may not represent what a buyer would be willing to pay until it's tested against the market. So I bring all this up to say this is a non this is a very political issue. But when you view it through the lens of it not being political issue, just break it down to fair market value. And then you comprise or you, you, you compare and contrast that against the judge's mugging for the camera. And you can't help but think that this is all for show. Gentlemen, it's come to my attention that a breakaway Russian Republic for Pakistan is about to transfer a nuclear warhead to the United Nations in a few days. Here's the plan. We get the warhead and we hold the world ransom for... One million dollars. <throat> well, don't you think we should maybe ask for more than a million dollars? A million dollars isn't exactly a lot of money these days. Virtucon alone makes over nine billion dollars a year. Really? Mm-hmm. It's a lot. Okay, then. We hold the world ransom for... One hundred billion dollars. I wanna be a billionaire so freaking bad by all of the things I never had. You're listening to the backyard, a billionaire. I'm Christopher Story. This is a show about how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. Remember, wealth equals wealth, health, and prosperity. And underneath all of that or overarching is happiness, well-being, contentment, and community. Thank you for being here. When we come back, we're going to talk about how big is your backyard. Stick around. Yeah, a different city every night. Oh, I, I swear the world better prepare for when I'm a billionaire. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. It's time now for your million dollar word. That's right. Zig Ziglar said, your understanding of what you read and hear is a, to a very large degree determined by your vocabulary. So improve your vocabulary every single day. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> really? People know me. Mm. Well, I'm very happy for you. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books and my apartment smells of rich mahogany <laughs> love me some ron burgundy all right your million dollar word today is fugacious Ooh, what a great word f-u-g-a-c-o-u-s fugacious it's an uncommon word it means fleeting or transient unlike the biden administration explaining that inflation was to be transitory, which, of course, we knew it was not to be. Um, this actually means fleeting or transient. And I thought, well, where did the word come from? Well, it's of Latin origin, fugax, F-U-G-A-X, meaning fleeting or transient. So fugacious, uh, fugacious obviously, works. Okay, used in a sentence. As soon as I put the freshly baked cookies on the table, they had a fugacious existence at the office potluck, disappearing faster than magician's rabbit. Fugacious. Use it in a sentence today and impress your friends tomorrow. 
But when your legs don't work like they used to before And I can't sweep you off of your feet Will your mouth still remember the taste of my love? Will your eyes still smile from your cheeks? Darling, I will be loving you Baby, my heart could still fall as hard at 23 And I'm thinking about how people fall in love in mysterious ways Maybe just the touch of a hand You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. I'm Chris Story along here with Ed Sheeran thinking out loud. So honey now Take me into your loving arms So how big is your backyard? Does size matter? Does it really matter if you have a big old backyard? How big do you want your backyard to be? I was talking to somebody a couple days ago and I was saying that Tiffany and I had come very, very close to making an investment in a property approximately one and a half weeks prior to a devastating hurricane hitting that exact spot. Now, the property didn't get destroyed, but the community still collecting itself. And this guy and I were talking about, he's a, he's a fellow investor, and we were just talking about... Um, you know, he, he said himself he, in Florida, he'd like to own something in the not too distant future. It's not for right now for him, but he said, I'd like to own something in the future there. And he said, you know, he said, I, I guess, you know, it's nice to think about expanding your investment footprint. And so to me, I think of that as how big is your backyard. Now, remember from the millionaire maker, step four, learn your local market. Right, That's step four in the Millionaire Maker, six practical steps to your first four homes. Learn your local market. Before you think about expanding your backyard, who cares how big your backyard is if you don't know the market? Your market could be nationwide if you understand every local market you're entering. I do not respect investors who are simply looking for doors across the nation, looking for investment plays in places they've never even heard of and don't know anything about. I don't respect that. You've got to have a fingertip feel, an understanding of your own backyard. Then you'll make and become a superior investor. As compared to the person who's just reading MSNBC or Forbes headlines and, and following easy money, following easy deals, you could be going right into the path of a storm and not even know it. Now, we knew that this was a hurricane area. I mean, it's Florida. Hello. It's coastal Florida. Hello. Um, but weren't worried about it per se. But we were ever grateful that we had held off simply for the fact that something, it was just our gut. It was just something in our instincts. Something was just not coming together. And, and I'll be honest with you because I think I can be. I think I should be honest with you. And the seller really annoyed us. And we're professionals. We should know better. But the seller was really annoying us. And it was the tiniest little difference. 
It was the smallest, insignificant in the grand scheme of things. It was a little bit like the, the, the princess and the pea, you know, super little thing that we just, it, it just began to gnaw at us. It began to gnaw at us like sort of that <clears throat> little pebble in your, in your shoe, in the, the heel of your shoe kind of. And anyway, so we listened to our instincts and we're going to come back to it. We're going to, but we know that market really, really well. We know it so well, we have a fingertip feel of that market, even though it's 3,482 miles away from us, because we've been looking and looking and looking and learning and talking to people and getting a sense of it. So how big is your backyard depends completely upon how much time are you willing to put into that other market. I don't want you to expand beyond this market, wherever this is. You fill in the blank of this market until you know it so well. Do you remember in the movie Jurassic Park, when the glass, the water glass, I think there's a water cup or something on the dashboard or in the whatever, and you, you start to see it kind of like boom, boom. You could see it in the water. It's and then they look out at the puddle and the puddles are just rippling. That's what when you get a fingertip feel, when you get a sense, when you have an understanding of your market, that's exactly what it's like. Know your market, have a realtor. If you haven't done this yet, have your realtor in your market who you know, like, and trust, put you on a subscription. And what happens is the property types that you're interested in get shuffled to your email every single day, or at least as often as they come to market. So you'll know before everybody else, before other investors, before other people, you'll know what's happening. Now, it's a couple of things. It's the, pri the, the property as listed, then any, any price changes or alterations, and then if a property comes back to market. You, you'll get all of those emails in a way that you will have the fingertip feel where you are with what you've got. See, your, rack, your backyard can grow as large as you like. I'm not concerned about how many states you're operating in, how many regions, counties, boroughs you're operating in, where you are. I'm only concerned that you never lose that fingertip feel. I want you to always maintain and always have that at your disposal. Best in breed or best in the world? Well, what separates your property from others of like kind? That's going to make all the difference. Bill, um, Gary Eldred says he wants you to be best in breed. Don't compare your property. Don't compare your rentals. Don't compare your life, actually. It's a great, this is actually a great life lesson. Stop comparing your life to somebody else that isn't like kind. Live your life. Run your race. But Gary Eldred says you've got to make sure that you are best in breed. If you've got two bedroom, one bath apartments, make sure yours are the best. If you've got three bedroom, four bath homes, make sure it's the best in the single family market rental division. Make sure you're best in breed. How do you do that? Well, there's a list of things that Gary Eldred suggests you consider when you're comparing your property for rent and or for sale. I want to go over that list in a little bit. I don't have time right now. So stick with me. We're going to go over Gary Eldred's list of things you need to consider when you become best in breed. Not best in the world, maybe, because, well, it's like, go back to Mar-a-Lago for a second. Are you going to compare your home to Donald Trump's 60,000 square foot 
place that he, after he bought it, by the way, <laughs> going back to that judge for a minute, after he bought Mar-a-Lago, he put a 20,000 square foot ballroom on it. Are you kidding me? That alone cost more than 18. Are you kidding me? Orson Sweat Martin wrote a book called Pushing to the Front in 1911. And he said in it, quote, we are beginning, this is 1911, okay, we, 1911, quote, we are beginning to find that there is an innate connection between absolute purity of one's thought and one's good health. Hello. This thing on? I miss Larry Elder. Remember that? This thing, hello, this thing on? Did you hear that? We are beginning to find that there is an intimate connection. Intimate. I said innate. Intimate connection between absolute purity of one's thought and one's good health. He goes on to discuss basically purity of thought and living determines that your success in, in any walk of life. So here's the thing. Are you holding on to a grudge? Are you holding on to anger? Are you holding on to hostility towards the world, towards a whole uh, half of the population or 51% of the population, the way they think, or even people close to you? So are, if you're holding on to grudges or anger or hostility towards people you know, people you don't know, people you think you might not like just because of the way they look or the way they vote or the way they act or the way they talk, let go of your end of the stick. Just let it go. I mean... It takes two, right? So if you let go of your end of the stick, that's it. You're released and you have freedom. And once you have that freedom, you have the freedom to think as you wish and to clear your mind, maintain purity of thought, not naivete, not being you know, a useful, happy, blissful idiot. I'm talking about purity of thought, which means you're going to control what's in your control. I had a recent issue recently with somebody and once I start to, to spin on an idea, spin on a thought, or just it act just in my mind, just complete disbelief on what somebody, can you believe they said that? Can you believe they behave this way? I know the problem is mine. I go to, a, I've got a wonderful book. I suggest it be in your library. It's been years since I've read it cover to cover, but I read it constantly. I touch it constantly. It's a book called Spiritual Solution for Every Problem by Dr. Wayne Dyer. And I opened, I was thinking about this situation, completely out of my control, nothing more I can do. It's how I react from here. It's going to make the difference. And I opened to a page, and I kid you not, I, I just randomly put my finger on a line, and I began to read. It's not between you and them. It's always been between you and God, Mother Teresa. And that's the truth. As you think, so shall you be. You're listening to The Backyard Millionaire. We're going to discuss the tree of life and go over Gary Eldred's best in breed for your real estate when we return here. Stick around. Look, you missed a piece of this program or you want to hear it back, go ahead and get on over to Spotify or Amazon Music or iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. Type in my name, Chris Story, or Backyard Millionaire, and you'll find it right there. Or go to my website, ilovehomeralaska.com. All right, you're listening to The Backyard Millionaire, how to create wealth where you are with what you've got. Chris Story here along with Mr. David Webb. You know, I know it, annoy, it annoys some people, but I kind of figure then this show just isn't for them. Like we had, um, 
one guy through social media, of course, say, I can't stand the way you say Homer Alaska. I'm like, okay, don't listen. It's a filter. That's why we like the Optimist Creed. That's why we like to talk about positive, uplifting things because it filters out the people the show isn't for. But I know this show is for you. All right, Gary Eldred. All right, how do you become best in breed? How to get your property to the best in breed? How you can outperform others? He's got a list of things that he wants you to consider. He said you can create prestige effect with any property. Just make it the best of breed for your market segment by managing the views, energy use, efficiency, square footage. Um, well, I mean, that's costs money to expand your square footage, but you can. You can add on a little bit or use it differently. Uh, natural light, ceiling height makes a big difference. Quietness versus noisiness. Can you deaden the sound a little bit if you're in a high traffic area? Can you add a little parking, provide a little more parking? Uh, room count. Like for example, Tiff and I have right now a three bedroom, two, one bath, and we're kind of really thinking about making it a two, two. And as a result with two suites of sorts, I think we'll have a lot better opportunity to increase the rent over time, but also keep a high quality tenant for longer because that second bathroom, that's a point. Uh, appliances, get the best, get quality appliances. One of our rental houses right now, we're getting a brand new uh, refrigerator and stove because boy, they've just limped along. It's like, no, no, just replace them both right now. It's fine. Uh, landscaping, we are right now at another house, actually have um, a great guy called Tyler Velstra is doing a bunch of work over there right now with his piece of equipment. It's that we're transforming landscaping all 100%, and it's going to be a whole different place, and we're going to provide best in breed in that house. Quality of finishes, heating, air conditioning, uh, decks, patios, balconies, all these things make a difference. Cleanliness, yeah, needs to be said sometimes. Um, carpeting, floor covering, uh, ixnay on the carpet, nay, don't do carpet in your rentals if you can all help it. Honestly, we do it once in a while, Tiff and I do, but ugh, just get, get the luxury vinyl plank. It's about one and done. It's almost indestructible. Uh, electrical outlets, make sure that you've got, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, thank you, Gary Eldred. This, this house that we're currently remodeling right now, I'm going to put in USB equipped outlets in a couple of places, like in the kitchen, uh, dining area, because do you know how convenient that is? Not to have to look for one of those little square things to plug in. Wow, that, that just came to me. Um, emotional appeal, that's like we're debating like on this house that we're renovating, like where do we put some shake, a little gingerbread that has that cottagey kind of feel to it. That's, that's an emotional appeal. Uh, color, obviously, living area, floor plan, closet space, closet and storage space, that's huge. Uh, kitchen, kitchen functionality. That's another one. We're probably going to demo out this kitchen because it's not, it, it's okay as it is, but Tiffany's got a design where it could be a lot more functional with a, a sort of an island instead of this peninsula. So, all right, we're going to take a look at that. Lifestyle, lighting, lighting's huge. And you know, the thing about lighting, I think, if you want to separate yourself from others and be best in breed, do go with the LED pancake sty style lights. I'm predicting in 10, 15 years from now, you're going to walk into a room and they're still going to be cool versus those um, glass, you know, um, lights that we all kind of went to with the, the, the aluminum or whatever, you know, the, the, 
you, you could see, I could see it right now in my mind, but for some reason I can't describe it appropriately for air, but you know what I'm talking about. It looks like on the ceiling. No, uh, those are very, very dated now, even though they were cool 10 years ago. So I think the pancake lights are going to continue to be cool and super efficient. So there you have it. That's how you can become best in breed. It only costs a little bit of money. Truthfully, I think we overexpand in our mind. We overestimate what it's actually going to cost to be best in breed. It doesn't cost as much as you think. And if you're like me, I actually really enjoy working on properties. Like I just installed a Toyo stove at one of our commercial properties the other day. I had a blast. I love it. Um, not quite it's still running, but I love it. I got it at VBS Heating. And by the way, here in Homer, Alaska at vbsheating.com, vbsheating.com, if you get a Toyo stove, I thought they were just doing this for me because I'm Chris Story. No, no. They did it for everybody. If you Right now, they have a special going. If you buy a brand new Toyo, they give you a solo stove. Hello. So I got myself a solo fireplace. I'm so excited. I've never had one. I can't wait to use it this next summer. I might even use it this winter. In fact, I will while I'm doing some Raku firings. Anyway, vbsheating.com, one of our great sponsors here at the Backyard Millionaire. The Tree of Life. You know, when you look at an acorn... It's almost impossible to think about this, but in that acorn is the mighty oak. It's inside of it. It's living right there. And when you plant it, it's going to draw from its surroundings to grow. And what does it do? It concentrates 100% of its energy. It doesn't split its energy and time between Netflix and growing. It just grows as tall as it can. I love Netflix, by the way, and Hulu. We stream shows. I'm not, I'm not saying we shouldn't. But I'm saying right where it is, with what it's got, the oak tree will grow how tall? as tall as it possibly can towards the sky, reaching high and wide. As high as it can, as wide as it can, the oak tree grows, and yet it rests all winter long. The oak rests and recharges so that when spring hits, it can hit the ground running, pun intended, and concentrate on growth again. So my point is you deserve the same. You deserve rest. You deserve to take time for intentional rest. You know, um, Jim Rohn always warned, don't rest too much. You know, the weeds will grow and the weeds will take over your garden, but, but get rest. And not just rest as you fall into the chair. Like we all get like, oh, just exhausted. You just fall down and like, oh, I need a break. Plan it. Secure time in the calendar. Set aside money for it so you can literally rest. Take a page out of the oak tree. Pun also intended. It just came to me. Isn't that great? Take a page out of the oak tree. What are, see, get it. Books and pages are made from paper, tree. Okay. Rest and watch the rest of your life grow. You made me laugh some. You made me cry some too. Yeah. You sent me off into a world of pain and made me someone new. You made all kinds of promises. not true it's not true i need you more than you need me that's for sure i was talking to a guy earlier today and he said he, somebody gave him a copy of my book the backyard millionaire but he hasn't read it yet and he said but it's sitting there on his desk and i said i don't care that it's just sitting there on your desk because i guarantee that the golden shovel and the idea and the notion that you can make a million bucks in your own backyard is going to have its effect on you it's going to inspire you remember my conversation with robert g allen 
He met this woman over in the Philippines, wherever she was, and he had written the book called No Money Down. How to invest in real estate and make millions with no money down. He read this in like 1982 or something. She comes up to him at a seminar. Eyes filled with tears and joy and gratitude. Gives him a big handshake and a big hug and says, Mr. Allen, you changed my life. And he said, oh, you read my book? No. <laughs> well, you bought my book? No. I saw the cover and thought, maybe I can do that. To think I used to love you and she did and she did she made millions in real estate simply for the idea having been planted like a seed in her mind that it was available to her well it's available to you as well in times like these you got to get creative i was reading this morning i'm almost done with it and then i'll probably stop talking about it but i'm almost done reading johnny carson the biography from Henry Bushkin, his longtime attorney. And I was reading this morning about the inauguration. See, President Reagan asked for Johnny Carson. Frank Sinatra put the whole show together, and he asked for Johnny Carson to be the MC. So Frank Sinatra comes to him and says, hey, uh, Ronnie wants you to, to MC this, this event. And he's like, oh, all right. Johnny Carson reluctantly agrees. And uh, anyway, so he's talking about, and he says, remember, this is the, it, it, what happens is, okay, just, this is a little bit of dish. Johnny's wife gets upset because Ed McMahon and his wife had better seats at the inauguration. They had better seats at this big production. And uh, she was like fuming mad. So, so President Reagan hears about this, that Johnny Carson's wife is upset at her seating. She should have been sitting in front of McMahon's, not the other way around, and she felt slighted. President-elect Reagan picks up the phone and calls the Carsons to apologize for any upset or unintended slighting. Obviously, Ronnie had nothing to do with it, but what a, what a great man to do that because he had such great admiration and respect for Johnny Carson. Point is, the author of the book's talking about all the while there's newly freed hostages that he's got to deal with, this horrible economy, 20% prime rate interest. 20%. All right, in times like that, our times like these, we're not there yet. We're what, 7 8% home mortgages, 8 to 9% commercial mortgages. Um, you got to get creative. That's it. You got to get creative. Ask yourself, how did they do it back then? How did they, whoever it is, let's just say that you admire somebody who's got a lot of property or somebody who's done something it is you want to do. Ask yourself, how did they do it? Better yet, go ask them how they did it. If they're incredibly famous and they wrote a book about it, go read their book, go read their biography, and then ask another question. What can you do to get started? What can you do right now, today, to get started? Even if it's not going from here to seven figures, not going from here to even a six-figure business, but going from here to start, what can you do? Where can you start? What do you already know? And what do you need to know? Here's what I do know. You really can make a million bucks in your own backyard. For David Webb and myself, I'm Chris Story, reminding you to look forward, learn from your past, but live the good life right here in the present.